Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Please take your Bible and turn with me to the Gospel of John. Today we continue our consideration of John's Gospel. It's been described by one commentator as the Gospel of Belief, and certainly that is a main theme of this great Gospel. The Bible says, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Of course, that's referring to Jesus, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. Today we're going to look, at, beginning with verse 1 of John chapter 13, and we'll study at least through verse 10 or 11 today. Verse 1 says, Now before the feast of Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself about. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. And so he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you shall understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, not all of you are clean. In 1949, Cosmopolitan magazine gave the honorific title of King of Diamonds to Harry Winston. Mr. Winston had been in the gem business since 1932. And by the way, the word gem is spelled G-E-M, not G-Y-M. He was a man who was a student of precious stones and mostly interested in diamonds. This man was a born gemologist in the sense that it was a natural bent that he had, but also he had the very powerful combination of not only being a gemologist of the first order, but also he was a shrewd businessman. It was his desire to be known as the greatest merchant of precious stones in the world. And he lived up to that. 
One day there was a man who had traveled across the ocean by boat all the way from his native Netherlands in order to see a diamond that he had seen advertised that the business which was owned and operated by Mr. Winston had for sale. Mr. Winston knew this man was coming, of course, and he planned to have his very best salesperson to work with him. The two men sat down together, and the salesman began to extol the virtues of the diamond. He was an expert with regard to diamonds. He gave an excellent presentation. Meanwhile, Mr. Winston was sitting watching, listening to what was happening, hadn't said a word. When the time came for the man to offer the gem to the Dutchman, the Dutchman, to the surprise of both Winston and also to the unnamed salesman, he said, no, thank you. He stood up and began to walk out of the presentation booth where he had looked at this diamond. And as he got ready to leave the room, Mr. Winston rose from where he had been sitting, walked over and said, Sir, would you give me just a few more moments of your time? The man turned and looked and he said, Yes, I will. He sat down and he listened as Winston took this brilliant diamond in his hand and he began to talk about it. And he talked about it with not detachment as talking to an inanimate object, but it was almost as though when he spoke of this, it seemed like it was alive. And then after giving a much briefer introduction to this jewel, he said, Sir, would you reconsider and buy this lovely jewel? And the man, without hesitation, said, Yes, I will. And the result was that he wrote a check, a huge sum of money, put it in the hand of the salesman who had failed in his attempt to persuade the Dutchman to buy it. And then before the man finally walked out of the room, he looked at Harry Winston and he said, how was it that when your best salesman explained and extolled the virtues of this diamond that I didn't want to buy it? But when you took it in your hand and began to talk about it, I wanted to buy it. What was the difference? Winston hesitated, and then he said to him, pointing to the salesman, he said, to this man, it was a diamond which he knew. To me, it's a gem which I love. Loving something makes all the difference, doesn't it? To the item or to the person, as a, compared to just having a passing interest in something and no emotional or volitional contact with that person or with that item. In this passage of Scripture, we see in verse 1 something that Jesus says that helps us to understand why He would love us, and it's illustrated in the fact that He loved the people who were with Him at this moment, a very crucial moment in Christ's life, 
as he was on the brink of going to be crucified for our sin, rejected by God and rejected by men. So let's look at verse 1 of chapter 13. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of this world to be with the Father. And let's stop there just a moment. If you are familiar with the book of John, you'll know in the second chapter of John, when Jesus, along with his mother, had been invited, and probably some other family members, to a wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. Do you remember that? And if you do, you probably remembered that the event was teetering on the edge of huge embarrassment because there was a lack of wine. The wine supply had been too meager. And so Jesus' mother, Mary, knowing of this, turned to him and said, what are you going to do about it, Jesus? That's not exactly what she said, but that's what she meant. Fully expecting that he would do something about it. She knew who he was. And he'd always been submissive to her. She was shocked, I'm sure, when he said, I'm not going to do anything about it. My hour has not yet come. Remember his saying that? He did something about it. It's a little confusing. But what we do know is, he said, my hour has not yet come. Fast forward, maybe 18 months or so, maybe even two years, in the seventh chapter of John, John is having a conversation with his half-brothers, Jesus is having, rather, a conversation with his half-brothers. And they are saying, brother, this is the time. The Feast of Booths. In the Feast of Booths, by the way, one of the seven festivals that occurred annually in Israel was the favorite of all. The reason it was the favorite is because it was a time of great festivity. And more people went to Jerusalem for that festival than the others as individual festivals. And Jesus says, any time is good for you. My hour has not yet come. What was he relating to when he said, my hour has not yet come? We see here in the first verse of the 13th chapter, his hour had come. And his hour had come that he should depart out of this world to the Father. What would that involve for Christ? It was his crucifixion. Why the delay? Could not Jesus, as soon as he started his public ministry, have died and paid the price for our sin? Absolutely. But if we were to go to the 17th chapter of John, when Jesus in his high priestly prayer is conversing with the Father, he's telling him, Father, I have accomplished the work that you have done, given for me to do. I've done it. And interestingly, the same verb and the same tense of the verb that Jesus used from the cross when at the end of his time on the cross, he said, it is finished, meaning he had paid in full for our sins. So it's a little confusing. He says over here to the Father, I've already finished this work. And then just a short while after, he says, I finished. Was Jesus confused? Not at all. The first statement of his having finished his work was that he had finished preparing the apostles to carry the ball forward with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He had poured his life into these men who were 
at this dinner that is spoken of here, and his hour had come, he was ready to leave. But these men, of course, were still diamonds in the rough, without exception, all of them, and one was a counterfeit diamond. We read about him in just a moment in verse 2, Judas. But the scripture goes on to say in verse 1, having said that Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart and go to be with the Father from this world. And then he says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. In that same prayer in John 17, where Jesus has told the Father, I've done what you gave me to do. He then launches into a wonderful prayer for us, really. It was for the 12, but it's for all who know him. And among the things which he prayed for the apostles and by association with us, Jesus prayed this prayer, and I suggest to you he still does it today. Why? Because Jesus lives to make intercession for you and me if we know him. Just as surely as he interceded for the apostles, he intercedes for us. That's his modus operandi. That is his reason for being. He intercedes for us before the Father, and we have no idea what that has saved us from. Separation from God is what it saved us from. But Jesus, in this situation... He is, I'm talking about John 17, he's praying that the Father would not take the apostles or us out of this world. What would happen if Jesus had heard the Father say, I'm taking them out of the world? The whole enterprise of evangelizing the world would have gone kaput because these, remember, were the people in whom he invested his best teaching effort, and he conveyed it to them. He drilled it in them over and over and over again, preparing them for fulfilling what we now know as the Great Commission, making disciples of all people groups in the world. It still goes on. And he loved his own who were in the world to the end. Twice it speaks of his loving them. He loved them to the end, which begs the question, what does Jesus mean when he says, John says, he loved them to the end? I'm going to suggest something, and I'm confident what I'm sharing with you is correct. He loved them to the end of his physical life. That's the first application. I'm talking about Jesus' physical life. A lot happened between this situation which we are studying together today a lot happened in a very short amount of time to the Lord Jesus. All these men, all of them, 11 of them skedaddled when he was arrested. They scattered like a covey of quail stirred up by a hunter or a dog. But what we see here is that one of the persons actually betrayed him. Judas did. The devil put it in his heart to do that, and he took the bait, that is, Judas did. Judas was not a pawn in the sense that he had no choice in it. Judas was someone who was tempted, and the devil knew who the person 
most likely among the twelve would be who would take the bait. And he did exactly that. But he loved them to the end. Let's think about what we read from Matthew 20 where the wife of Zebedee, the mother of James and John, comes to Jesus and he says to Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, will you give my sons one the place on the right hand of your throne, the other on the place of the left hand of your throne? And what did Jesus say? You're asking me something you don't know about. This is a not an easy task, and after all, I'm not the one who makes that decision. I, evidently, the Father makes such a decision. And then, as soon as he said that, the boys piped in, James and John. It was not just Mama. It was her sons, too, and they piped in. Here these guys were, and they were ambitious, weren't they? selfishly ambitious. They loved Jesus, I believe that, but they were not pure in their motives, just like we are many times. We may love Christ, but we may love Him with some tainting of our motives. It's probable that we all have fallen into that category occasionally, but He loved them to the end, all of them deserted. And they were people to begin with that would not be likely candidates to be given the authority and the responsibility of spreading the gospel all over the world. When two of them, the two leaders, John and Peter, were arrested, remember that? And they were brought before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the governing body of internal affairs within Israel. And they were questioned, cross-examined, and scolded, and then they were taken out of the room so that the members of the Sanhedrin could put their heads together and find a proper punishment for them in an effort to be done with them and the shenanigans that were associated with this preaching of the message of the resurrected Christ. But as they talked about these two men, Peter and John, they were amazed at the wisdom they had. And they said about them that they were untrained, uneducated men. They had no formal education. They were not professionals. You might say they were businessmen. James and John and Peter and Andrew probably put their fleet together, maybe a couple of boats, and fished the Sea of Galilee and probably were successful in marketing that which they caught. But these, these men were not the kind that if I were starting or you were starting a worldwide movement that would change not only that particular era in history, would change history and eternity, we probably wouldn't have picked them. Take Philip, for example. Philip, in the next chapter of John, we're going to see Philip asking a question of Jesus. He said, Jesus, would you please show us the Father? And that would be enough for us. And Jesus must have sh shaken his head. I, I don't know. But he says, have I been so long with you, Philip, and you still don't know who I am? He'd been hanging out for three years, and he still didn't know who he was. And what about Thomas? 
Doubting Thomas. When Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also, and you know the way where I'm going. And then Thomas, scratching his head, said, Lord, how do we know the way? Show us the way. And he said, have I been so long with you? And you hadn't gotten it yet, Thomas. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Would you pick these guys to be the raw recruits who would become the people who turned, according to the description of the book of Acts, the world upside down? Probably not. They would have failed your interview process with them, but they didn't fail Jesus. Why? Jesus says to Peter in John 1, when he saw him, when his brother Andrew brought Peter to Jesus and he saw him, he said this to Peter. You are the son of John and you will be no longer called Simon. You will be called what? Cephas, which translated from Aramaic into Greek is Peter. You will be called Peter. And you know what Peter means? Rock. That's what it means. And if you know anything about the apostle Peter, he was rather whimsical. He, he was somewhat unsteady. He had a lot of courage, but he spoke before he thought sometimes. Someone said the only time he opened his mouth was to put, change feet. You know, he always had his foot in his mouth. But this is what goes on. Jesus picks unlikely candidates. And he said, you shall become Peter. Meaning, you're going to be transformed. I know who you are, Jesus said. But you're going to be changed. Fundamentally changed. And certainly that was true. And he loved them to the end. You know the Lord loves us like that. The Bible says in 1 John 3 verse 1, it says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called His children, and so we are. The children of God. Sinners. Children of God. People who had no interest in Him. Children of God. He came after us, and He selected us, and He enlisted us, and now we, not unlike this group, not necessarily people that someone in government in El Paso or the United States or other parts of the world would choose to be part of a worldwide movement to change history and to prepare people for eternity. But Jesus has a different perspective, doesn't he? He loved them. And you know the same is true for you and me. He loves us to the end of his life, of course, but in his resurrected state, he loves us. And this indicates why he would do what he does for us to live, to make intercession for us. Now let's go a little further. Verses 2 and following. And during supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of man, to betray him, Jesus, it speaks of Jesus knowing something else. He knew, first of all, what? that his hour had come. What does he know secondly? That the Father had given all things into his hands and he had come forth from God and was going back to God. Jesus, we know, according to John 1, 
The Bible says about him, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and nothing has come into being that has come into being. Jesus Christ was God before time. He was God equal, co-equal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus knew where he had come from. He had come from God and was going back to God. Jesus forfeited a royal life beyond our wildest dreams when he stepped out of heaven and became a human being. As J.I. Packer says in his book entitled Knowing God, imagine God reduced to a span. I had to look up what does a span amount to. 18 inches is really what it amounts to. To a span, God reduced by his own volition on a mission. He had to undergo and experience everything any human being would experience in order to fit the bill, to be our substitute, to die on the cross, to pay for our sins by becoming the place of punishment punished no less than by God the Father himself. And verse 4 says, and there is some drama here. First of all, he rose from supper. Secondly, he laid aside his garments. Thirdly, he took a towel, and then he girded himself about. The word girded means wrapped that garment around his abdominal region. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel with which he was girded. Let's look at verse 4. Rose from supper. I'm going to suggest to you this morning that this is a picture of Jesus getting off of his throne in heaven when the time had come, according to the plan of salvation that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit had collaborated on and leave heaven to be one of us and laid aside his garments. This would be a picture of his not divesting himself of being God. He remained God, but divesting himself, doing away with his glory. You may recall when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, as it's called, and there was a visit from Moses and Elijah. And what happened? Peter was there, James was there, John was there. What happened to the appearance of Christ? He became so bright. His glory, which had been there all along, but had been cloaked, was revealed. And so what Jesus did, he lay aside not his deity. He remained God all the while. But he lay aside his rights to exercise his deity on his own volition, on his own decision. Because as we saw last week, if you were here, look at verse 49 and 50 of John 12. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. He didn't say anything except what the Father said. And he didn't do anything except what the Father gave him an order to do. That's what it means 
he laid aside his garments. This reminds you probably, if you know your Bible relatively well, in the book of Philippians 2, it says, Have this attitude in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, what did he do? He became one of us. He took the form of a servant. The New International Version says, actually it's the word slave. Servant's too mild a word. There's a word for servant, diakonia. The word for slave is doulos. He, he made himself a slave. He continued to be God, but he became one of us. And he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is the life of Jesus. And this is what we see unfolding here, I'm suggesting. And he took a towel. What is that indicative of? Well, we know from reading both secular sources and religious sources. Let's begin with the secular sources contemporary to Jesus. There has never been to this day, and there have been people who've looked for evidence of this in Hebrew writing and secular writing, Greco-Roman. Since we're dealing with the secular first, they have found nothing in secular writing that would indicate that anyone other than a slave would have done what Jesus did. It was unthinkable. It was something that would be horrifying. And we see it in a moment in the response or reaction of Peter when Jesus comes to wash his feet. We'll see it in a moment. But what we also know, Suetonius, who was an historian in the first century into the second century A.D., he wrote a biography of the first 11 emperors of Rome. He, it's entitled by those who study it today as Suetonius's Lives of the Twelve Caesars. It included Julius Caesar making the dozen. And in one of those biographies, I think it was on Domitian, what he talks about is how the... Greco-Roman world, people who were non-believers, the Gentile intelligentsia, they would say, this has never happened, whether among Greeks, Romans, or the Jewish people. The Jews had this practice in Jesus' day. They would always have water available for washing of feet. It was a very filthy environment in which Jesus and his men walked. And when they came in off the dusty and polluted roads or streets that they walked on, there was water always ready. It was just good hospitality to afford that to the guests who were coming. And then they could wash their feet, get rid of the grit and the grime that had accumulated as they walked in sandaled feet down these dusty roads. And what we know is that the Jews said it would be only a Gentile, non-Jewish slave who could do this. So that's the background here. And so Jesus shocked his apostles. It would have been shocking to you and me too if we had been from that era. And verse 6 says, so he came to Simon Peter. Peter said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? He was astonished. He was just not going to have it. Jesus answered and said to him, what I do to you, do, 
do, you do not realize now, but you shall understand hereafter. What's he talking about when he speaks of hereafter? What will happen that will cause Peter and the others to understand what Jesus was doing to them in this ritual? Well, it would unlikely be a surprise to you that he was talking about the crucifixion and then followed by the resurrection. Some have even said it would include Pentecost when the church was formed, the Holy Spirit came to indwell all the believers. All of those would be correct answers. But there was not proper understanding at this point for Peter or for the others. He was not the only one. Verse 7 says, Jesus answered and said to him, What I do for you, do not realize, you do not realize now, but you shall understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. And I can't tell you how forceful this statement was. This it was really a statement of command to Jesus. Never shall you wash my feet. That was rather daring, wasn't it, on the part of the apostle? Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. The little phrase, no part with me, really reduce it down to the two words, no part. When you look at the way this is used elsewhere in the New Testament, for instance, you remember the parable of the prodigal son? Remember that story? And how the youngest of two brothers comes to the father and he does the unthinkable. He says, I want my inheritance, my part. He says, I want my part, really is what he says, which was a euphemism or a substitute for the idea of the inheritance. And the father gives it to him. It has to do with inheritance. So with that in mind, let's go back and read this once more. Jesus says in the last part of verse 8 of John 13, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. In other words, i got to wash you, Peter, if you're going to be saved, if you're going to be in my kingdom, this is a necessity. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Peter was all in or not at all, wasn't he? I want the whole deal. Pour the bucket over me. Pour the basin full over me. He said, I need the full Monty, he's saying. And then verse 10, Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet but it's completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you, for he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, not all of you are clean. We know who that is. That's none other than Judas himself. So let me try to give you, for the rest of the time we have together, something that's very relevant to your life one way or the other. Really, in this section of John 13, Jesus is talking about two aspects or phases of one's salvation. In the first place, we have to be fully cleansed. We have to be purified by the work of Jesus Christ. Now, we've got a problem. You know what our problem is, don't you? The Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one, the Bible also says there is no one who seeks God. There is no one who understands God. Wow, that puts all of us out of luck, doesn't it? 
And we know the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We know in Isaiah, the great prophet, he says, your sin has separated me from you. In the book of Habakkuk, the Bible says, God has says, pure eyes, he cannot even look on sin. So we have to be cleaned up. We can't clean ourselves up. If we had a hundred lives to work on cleaning ourselves up, we would still remain filthy because we are at the core sinful. We were born with a sinful nature and there's no way to eradicate that except through the grace of God. We are in opposition to God. Read Romans chapter 5. But by God's grace, God demonstrated His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, that is, enemies of God, Christ died in our place. He took the penalty for sin for you and for me. Isn't that amazing? And the Bible says also in that same chapter, Romans 5, it says, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know what justified means? It's a legal term which was used in the Roman court system when someone was accused and really even was guilty of a capital crime punishable by death it's a picture of someone who is doomed to die and then is pardoned, completely pardoned, and has no record that anyone can go and pull out of the system in Rome and throw it in his face again. Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, he purchased a place in heaven which he offers to us as a free gift. It cannot be earned. It certainly is not deserved. And Christ has done this for us. He cleans us in a sovereign act of God in saving us. We had nothing to do with it. That's the first aspect. The second part, he talks about, Jesus does, says, I'm going to, I'm going to, he says, I'm going to wash your feet. And the word wash is a word, when you study its usage inside and outside of the New Testament, in the Greek language, what you will discover is it's a word which meant washing a part of something. Not the whole, but a part. The word cleansing has to do with cleansing the whole. This has to do with a part. So this is the second part. And you'll follow this very easily, I believe. Here's the second part. After one comes to know Jesus... Is it still possible to sin? Amen or not? I mean, we don't want to amen sin, but you know what I mean. I thank God that I'm not keeping track of all my sinning. But what I do know is God has made a way for me to not let my sin be a roadblock between my fellowship and Jesus, with Jesus and Jesus. And so when I sin, we as believers have been given an antidote for that. A cleansing property, if you will. 1 John is a great book to read. If you've never read it carefully, 
with this subject in mind. In the fifth chapter, there are only five chapters, this is what John writes. He said this. This is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. It's rather clear-cut, isn't it? There's no part way. Christians, you either have the Son, and if you have him, you have life. And how'd you get him? You didn't get him because you looked for him. He came looking for you. You didn't find Christ. Christ found you. Jesus says about himself that he is the Son of Man. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That was all the work of God through the person of Jesus Christ and with the input of the Holy Spirit of God. But the second part, is that referred to in the book of 1 John? Absolutely. In 1 John, I need to back up in quote 13 of 5. I did 12, 11, 12 of that, 13. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. The Lord wants us to know. And one of the hindrances to our being sure of our salvation is we sin and we don't know what to do with our sin. 1 John 1 says, if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's comprehensive, isn't it? And he goes on to say in the second chapter, just a verse later, he says this, My little children, if any of you do sin, we have an advocate, that's like a defense attorney, from the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who is a propitiation, which means a perfect sacrifice for our sin. Jesus has given that to us so that when I sin now, Thank God someone taught this to me 50 years ago. My pastor, when I was 21 or 22 years old, I can't remember exactly, almost 22 if I was 21, he taught this principle to me. Keep short accounts of your sin as a believer in Christ. You still sin, but you're not primarily a one who is destined to be a sinner. The Lord is in the process of making you more like Christ through the term is sanctifying you, setting you apart. And you're to cooperate with Him in that. But meanwhile, don't linger in sin. Immediately when you become aware of it, and the Holy Spirit gives great sensitivity to this. I can testify to that. And you know it and you confess it to the Lord. And what does He say? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to do what? and to purify us from how much unrighteousness? All unrighteousness. Not just some. Legally, all of that has been taken care of. Presently, however, as we are in this world and we still have the flesh to deal with, we need help along the way, don't we? And the beauty of this is that Jesus, in washing the feet of His apostles, made that way. A quick illustration to conclude for those of you who are here today and may not know Jesus. It's a story that originated in Russia. Tsar Nicholas I was the ruling monarch. He appointed a friend's son to a place 
of responsibility, great trust was put in this young man. He was at the very core of keeping the books of the empire. He had access not only to the accounting, but also to many of the funds. And this young man was fundamentally, he was honest, but he had a problem with gambling. He was from an aristocratic family, so there was money available to him, but he squandered all of his money in gambling. But he couldn't find a way to quit gambling. So he went to the easiest source of money, and that was to the treasury of the czar. He went, he took money out and kept track of every ruble he took, and he got deeper and deeper in debt. He knew there would be a day of reckoning, but you know how it is. You, you really don't listen to your conscience in a situation like that because you're so hooked on some kind of addiction you have. And there came an order one day down from the czar's headquarters, and it said, we're going to have an audit tomorrow on the state of the economy in this nation as it relates to my wealth. Well, you can imagine the panic that threw this boy into. He went down to the vault where the books were kept, and he saw what the stated amount of money was, the worth of the kingdom. Then he took all that he had gambled away, and it was a lot of money, and he said to himself, I'm done. And he had no answer. The answer he determined was to take his gun and take his life. And so the story goes, he was going to wait until midnight to see if something would happen, maybe. And he was so exhausted that he fell asleep. He had his pistol on the table. He fell asleep. And the czar himself had a habit of dressing in a soldier's uniform and visiting different parts of the army. And he made his way down into this area where this young man worked and he knocked on his door, no answer, he opened it, walked in, the young man was so sound asleep he didn't wake and he saw a note the young man had written and left on the table beside the gun and it simply read this way, a great, great debt, who can pay? Wow, immediately the czar knew what had happened. He knew this boy had stolen money he was infuriated, and he was going to have him court-martialed. And then all of a sudden, a wave of mercy and generosity came across his heart. And he knew he had enough money to cover this huge amount of money. He was not going bankrupt, nor would the country be compromised fully. So he found a pen, and after the statement, a great debt, who can pay? He gave his signature. He left without awakening the young man. About an hour later, the young man awoke. He reached for the pistol. Then he saw the name beside him. He says, it's Nicholas. He said, could it be? So he went down into the vault again, and he looked at documents that he knew which had been signed with that signature. And sure enough, it was his signature. And the rest, as they say, is history. He was forgiven. He had no capacity to pay. It was his debt. Do you know that's exactly what God did for us in Jesus Christ? 
You could be the best person in your humanity in this whole room. If you don't know Jesus Christ, it doesn't hold any water with God the Father. Because He says, Be ye therefore perfect, as my Father in heaven is perfect. There's only one who's perfect, Jesus. And He, in dying in my place, in your place, He not only took the punishment, but this is what else He did. He put you in Him, in Christ. Christ is in you, but you are in Christ. Therefore, there is no condemnation for you who is in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. We pray that if you do not know Jesus Christ, you would come to Him and admit your total inability to make yourself right with God. You recognize that Jesus has to take the initiative, and He's done it probably in this message if you were listening, speaking to you about this. And if you'll give your life to Jesus, just give it to Him fully. Don't hold anything back. You will be completely saved and not ever have to worry about going out of this world on a collision course with separation from God forever in what the Bible calls hell. Lord, we pray that You would help each of us regardless of which side of salvation we're on. If we don't know Christ, Lord, pray there'd be at least one person today who would give his or her life to Jesus. And if we do know, but we're languishing in our own fleshliness, we're giving in to temptation, help us to realize You are the way out of that, Lord. Help us to learn to practice what You teach us in the book of 1 John and elsewhere. Thank You, Jesus for loving us to the end. Amen. God bless you.